This podcast is being recorded in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the land of the Sandia Pueblo, Laguna Pueblo, Acoma Pueblo, and Isleta Pueblo. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us at the Talking Circle. Today, our friend and mentor, also professor and teacher, scholar, theologian, Terry LeBlanc, uh, joins us from Canada at the table. Uncle Terry has been active in full-time vocational ministry with the Native North American community since 1978. He was CEO and Director of Indigenous Pathways overseeing Eye Emergence and NATES, but he has since stepped down to spend more time with his wife, Ev, who, is, who, who, who he has been married to for over 50 years. Terry has been the recipient of three fellowships and the Student of Highest uh, Distinction Award. He completed his PhD at Asbury Theological Seminary and was awarded the DD Honoris Causa by Acadia University in 2015 and by Knox College in 2019. During the summer of 2022, Pope Francis decided to visit Canada. The Pope's visit was focused on apologizing for the Catholic Church's role in the Canadian Indian residential school system. He also came in hopes of reconciliation. This may have simply been a reaction to the news of the discovery, which was always known by First Nations people, that mass graves were located nearby all Indian residential schools in Canada. Residential schools were set up by the government to forcibly assimilate First Nations people. Some estimate that over 150,000 children were stolen from their homes beginning in the 1880s all the way into the 20th century. A short excerpt from Politico.com article entitled, Pope's Six-Day Canada Pilgrimage Leaves Deep Hole. And it reads, Pope Francis's apology for the Catholic Church's role in running residential schools admitted deplorable evil perpetrated by members of the church whose policies had catastrophic, catastrophic effects on children and their families. But he only apologized for the actions of some individuals, not the institution as a whole. Francis also didn't broach the topic of repatriations, nor did he commit to disclosing records that would help locate the final resting places of many indigenous children. He didn't say a word about revoking a 15th century papal edict that denied sovereignty to non-Christians, the doctrine of discovery that historians say underpins centuries of dehumanization of indigenous peoples. And that's the end of the excerpt. The events of the Pope's attempt to apologize to First Nations people caused me to wonder, well, what is an apology? Can a person, even the Pope, apologize for the catastrophe of Indian residential schools in Canada and boarding schools here in the United States? As my friend Mark Charles would often say, is that 500 years of oppression of indigenous peoples is too much for any one person to bear. Is this even true for the Pope, who is the spokesperson for the Catholic Church? And so we have Terry here, who is a citizen of Canada and a member of the Mi'kmaq people, to give us his uh, reflection on the Pope's apology. Uh, Terry LeBlanc, I live in what we call a picnic. Uh, which is Abiguit in an anglicized sort of telling of the name, Abiguit. Uh, Prince Edward Island in the English, uh, Ile du Prince Edouard en Francais. Um, it's, um, it's one of seven districts of what we call Mi'kma'ki, uh, the land of Mi'kmaq people, uh, also known as the land of the people of the dawn or where the sun comes to life uh, each morning. Uh, here on the island, there are two Mi'kmaq communities, um, Lennox Island First Nation uh, in the western part of this small province in, in Canada, and then Abiguit uh, First Nation, um, existing in three small settlements. Um, 
And it's with Abigwit, uh, my relatives there that I live um, and uh, uh, serve as an elder at the uh, Abigwit First Nations Mi'kmaq Healing Center, where we deal with a lot of the impacts of, um, of the conversation we'll probably have a little bit this afternoon. I'm married to Bev, uh, my wife of 50 years this past Friday. We celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Um, and for those of you who um, notice that I, I still look very young, um, we were five <laughs> years old when we were married. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so that's that's why we're we're sort of keeping fit and trim. Uh, we have three children. We have twin daughters, Jennifer and Janine. They're actually mirror twins. Uh, so it's it's as if you were looking in a mirror and you raised your right hand and your left hand would raise in the mirror and and that sort of thing. They're exact mirror images of one another, at least when they dress the same and comb their hair and all of that sort of thing. Um, each of them uh, are involved in PhD studies, one at the University of Alberta in the Indigenous Studies faculty uh, at the University of Alberta. And she's uh, studying the role of uh, patron St. Anne on the lives of Mi'kmaq women down through the last number of centuries. Um, and our, our daughter Jennifer is doing a PhD in ethnomusicology, and she's studying uh, the intersection of um, uh, heavy metal, black metal music, and uh, indigenous traditions in music on the lives of indigenous, uh, Donnie, you'll like this, indigenous young people, particularly millennials. Good to be with you. I look forward to the to the chat in these next hour or thereabouts. Awesome. Great. Great, Terry. Thank you uh, for that uh, introduction and telling us about you. And uh, so, Terry, I guess the first question I have for you is what advice do you have for those of us who are married? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I need Bev here for that. You know, people say what made it work. And, and I, you know, there isn't a formula that I could think of that we that we you know, created and could market and sell for profit or anything of that nature. Um, uh, we've had, I you know I, I like to say we've only ever had one fight. That, that'd be, that'd be key to it. Like we only ever have ever only had <laughs> one fight and it started in 1972. Um, um, you know, <laughs> and it just keeps going or like, just yeah, well, <laughs> you know, we just, we just, yeah, yeah, Renee, we just, you know, we just recycle some of the, some of the argument or some of the conversation, you know, <laughs> don't want to lose anything in the, in the middle of all of that. But, but I, I don't know if there's a formula. We get up every morning, you know, it's very much like, um, I learned many years ago when I was, when I was uh, working as a, a, a chaplain with the Agassiz Center for Youth with in, Indigenous youth. Uh, who were incarcerated, um, and I, I used to try and figure out how to communicate in a good way with them, and 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 to do do that about sort of what it, what it meant for me to be um, to be a Christian and and indigenous and all that, and and it, it never seemed to make much sense because you're always talking about it uh, as we had been taught to talk about it is sort of an arrival thing. I I gave my life to Jesus, and now I've arrived. Right. It's all over and done. I'm on my way to heaven, paid, the, you know, all that stuff. And it never connected with them because a lot of our young people and, and a, a result of some of what we'll talk about a little later, I think um, a lot of our young people came from homes that had been so damaged by colonialism, um, you know, by the colonization process, by 
residential school, either their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents, in some cases, aunties and uncles and so forth, that when they went home from incarceration, they went to the same place, the same circumstance, the same realities that they had they had come from when they were first incarcerated as young people. And so to talk about arrival, um, you know, I've, I've arrived, I've got everything all sorted out and said and done, and I'm on my way to heaven. You, I, I began to understand, you know, that though the Western church taught me that that was the way to talk, that that wasn't a good way to talk. So I started to talk about journey. I started to talk about what it meant to be out in the bush hunting and you're on a journey and you're, and you're trying to find the trail and sometimes you miss the trail and, and sometimes you end up on a trail you weren't expecting and how do I find my way back and how do I recover the trail? How do I keep from falling in the swamp? How do I? So I began to talk more in those sorts of ways and, uh, and I could see more light bulbs coming on, uh, more interest and and so one day I, I walked in and I said, you know, today I became a follower of Jesus. And I told him what that meant to me, uh, what I was trying to do, uh, how I was trying to live and how I was trying to behave and, and, and what I hoped it might mean for me. And when I finished, I said, I hope when I wake up tomorrow, I'll choose to be a follower of Jesus again. Um, and so to, instead of talking about arrival and a destination, mm -hmm. I, I began to talk about this journey and my desire to stay on a good trail, to, to take a good road and stay on a good road. I think that's what Bev and I try to do each day. So I, I have a question for you. What uh, what do you guys still do like for fun, like together? Uh, we help one another up and down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about this this morning. We're, we're, quite, we're quite blessed to be in good health. So neither of us have health issues. And and so we're able, we joke a lot. Um, we, we, have, we have ways that we've joked with one another now for these 50 years. Uh, we have, you know, we have ways that we talk to one another that, that make light of things that, that we need to make light of that we don't want to take seriously. But we enjoy, for years, we enjoyed living in the bush um, every summer you know, on horse with our pack horses, taking a kin for as much of the summer as we could. We've enjoyed a lifestyle of hunting and, and uh, trapping when we were first married. Um, we enjoy doing things together um, um, as much as as possible. And you, I mean, you guys know that if if I go somewhere and Bev's with me the first time I go somewhere, and then if I go there again a year or two later, the first thing people ask me is, where's Bev? Yeah. Like, like they don't say it's nice to see you. They say, where's oh, yeah. Bev? You know, sort of thing. I know what that feels like. <laughs> yeah, we enjoy doing some traditional stuff. I'm sure you do, Donnie, because mm -hmm. Renee is far more, time. Far oh, more yeah. interesting oh, yeah. Way, and yeah. pleasant than you are. I just wanted to know um, kind of, uh, from where you're at, what it what what has the experience been like um, with just the visit from the Pope? And I feel mm. like it, it is it is um, it's going to happen here, or it's going to affect us here too um, down in North America. Um, yeah. But even yeah. just being aware of those themes, like what what is what has your experience been like, and what your community has gone through? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, uh, the effort to have the Pope come, not not the current one, previous Popes come um, and listen to First Nations, Inuit, Métis people in Canada and, and, and in the U.S. for that matter, um, talk about their experiences at residential and boarding schools, at at denominationally run day schools and all that sort of stuff has been a long, long effort. I, I remember sitting on a panel with former Grand Chief Bill Fontaine, um, who was the first to disclose sexual abuse at the residential school in Canada. Um, and and one of the things he wanted very much to do was to have the Pope come and offer apology. And so he worked at that for a long, long time. And when I saw him in Rome, along with uh, members of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, particularly um, Willie Littlechild, uh, former uh, chief in Alberta and a, and a, and a lawyer, uh, Cree man. Uh, when I saw them in Rome and I heard them talk about their experience of being in Rome with the Pope, um, inviting him to come, that was, that was uh, earlier this year, um, and urging him to come and so forth, I, I was reminded of how long it has been um, a part of people's desire for the Pope to come. And along with uh, what has happened in Canada with other denominations like the Presbyterian Church and the United Church and the Anglican Church and others whose leaders offered apology many years ago, to have the Pope come and do the same. Um, so when he came, there were mixed expectations some people some people were looking forward to it some first nations Inuit, metis people who had been residential schooled or who were survivors of uh, of um, relatives who'd been residentially schooled parents and grandparents etc um so, some of them were very much looking forward to that apology and and they they were looking forward to feeling some release um some uh yeah, some spiritual release, perhaps some uh, emotional release, some sense in which somebody had acknowledged what had happened to them or their parents or grandparents or aunties and uncles and so forth. And others were not so certain that it was needful, that that in fact they wanted the Pope to come, um, that uh, there was anything he could say that would alleviate their pain, their suffering, their their families' experiences, the impact that that, along with other colo uh, uh, processes of colonization, had done. Uh, so there's a lot of mixture. Um, you may recall if you saw some of the uh, video footage of the time that the Pope was on Mascochis First Nation, uh, which was the one of the uh, communities that he visited in Alberta, in Canada. Um, there was a woman who who cried out in the Cree language um, to the tune of O Canada. Um, and, and her cry was, was um, I mean, it was a, a call to reflect more deeply and more seriously on what was going on and to not gloss it over with a simple apology. So, so there was this real turmoil. Um, so a member of our board, the Board of Indigenous Pathways, under which Nate's functions, um, his brother-in-law was uh, Wilton Littlechild, or Willie Littlechild, who was one of the three commissioners for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. 
And it was his brother-in-law, Willie, who presented the headdress, if you remember seeing that, to the Pope. And, and Willie was criticized strongly uh, for that. But I had a chance to, ch to chat with Willie on the phone for a couple of hours some weeks later. And he said, you know, he said, all four of the communities that comprise Maspuchis, um Cree Nation um, and all of our elders and all of my family, when we talked about what do we need to do, if anything, uh, in recognition of this visit, all of them said, without exception, um, we need to present a gift to the, to the Pope. Um, now, it's not a gift of, um, we'll ignore everything that went before. So now we're, you know, that was then, this is now, let's move on into new. But it was a, it was a, a, a connecting point. It was a, a waypoint for them that, that they hoped would allow them to collect the experiences of the past and the feelings of the past, the emotions of the past, the impact of the past, um, collect it together to remember it and then not to set it aside, but to continue to bring it forward so that they visited uh, with some regularity what had happened so that they could be reminded of the need to never let it happen again. And so there was all of this that was a part of the presentation and that headdress uh, was from Willie's grandfather. That had been it had been rebuilt by by um, a member of the headdress society, um, but it was it was a family piece. So it wasn't it wasn't that it was supposed to stand in for every First Nations Inuit or Métis person in Canada or anywhere else for that matter. But it was a family piece and a piece of of, of life that that Willie Littlechild committed to. It was also a way of recognizing, uh, as Willie talked about it, it was a way of recognizing the, the numbers of times that he had visited Rome um, and had audience with the Pope or, or the Pope's um, administrators, the cardinals and others, to seek to persuade them to move you know, in this direction toward apology. So, so there was a lot behind it. And, and, it, and it went to, when I, when I heard people talking about it, um, and I called Joe Dion, his uh, Willie's brother-in-law, on our on our board, and I said, "Hey, Joe, can you can you help me understand what went on here?" He said, "Well, let's talk to Willie." So, so there's an awful lot when we see it on the surface, particularly social media these days. You see this soundbite, or hear this soundbite. You see this little video clip, but you don't know anything about what went on behind it all. And so we we jump to some decisions and judgments and conclusions about what it all meant when. And in fact, a lot of that was very, very wrong. Um, and I listened to Willie and his heart on it and, and what his community and his elders had said. Um, and it made sense for them. Um, now, they didn't do that for every First Nations Inuit Métis person in Canada or the U.S. or anywhere else. They did it as a part of what they felt for them was the right thing to do. And, and that points up the fact that the, the apology is often... Um, uh, viewed and experienced very differently by different people. Um, you know, some who are at a place in their journey where they're they need to receive that in order to be able to take next steps toward healing and health and well-being. Uh, for others, it, it may be I wouldn't say a final step, but a significant step toward healing, health, and well-being. 
for still others, it reminds them of how far they are away from uh, healing and health and well-being, um, and and perhaps a number of things in between. Uh, so, uh, you know, so there was these mixed emotions, mixed feelings, uh, mixed expectations, mixed outcomes, um, and so on. On a personal level, when I heard the Pope apologize for the acts of some Christians um, who, you know, were misdirected or who acted wrongly and so forth, it left me a bit flat um, because it wasn't some Christians who created the policies of the Catholic Church. It was the leadership of the Catholic Church that created those policies. So the doctrine of discovery, which Mark Charles has done a very good job along with Sung Chan Ra on, on helping to unpack at least its impact in the United States and, and the connectedness that the doctrine of discovery has to the you know, Declaration of Independence, U.S. Constitution and so forth, uh, which, which sadly a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, Christians quote almost that more than they quote the Bible in terms of, you know, uh, I don't know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness kinds of things. But but Mark and, and Sun Chan pointed out in the doctrine of discovery, in, in the analysis of the doctrine of discovery, manifest destiny and terra nullius, the, the policies that were put in place by the papacy of the day, whether Nicholas or Pius or, or, or Paul, uh, the, the, the Pope Paul or others, compounding the idea that the Catholic Church and uh, in right of all Christians has has given authority to monarchs to go wherever they want to go and wherever there isn't a Christian uh, nation or a Christian government, they have the right to take the land and do whatever they feel is appropriate. Um, there was no apology for that because that's what set the stage for the residential schools, for the boarding schools. Um, you know, for the uh, uh, constant efforts over centuries to assimilate indigenous people. Um, so I, I was reminded very much that that in those first days, the Pope apologized not for the church's policies and practices, but for the errors of some Christians. Now, he later, back in Rome, went on to expand on that and to talk about the efforts of the church is be, uh, or of Christians and and in some cases the church is being genocidal, so as being an effort to eradicate uh, indigenous peoples and so on. Um, and and one wondered, at least I wondered, why why he wouldn't have said that when he was here, where where in this context it, it would have had not necessarily a different impact, but a more um, a more closely felt experience of that. So, um, so it, it points up the fact that when we're in any of us, when we're in leadership, you know, it's like the old saying, the buck stops here. When you're in leadership and, and under your watch, something takes place that, that needs to be addressed with an apology and an, and a, and a request for forgiveness that it needs to be you in right of your institution, your organization, your program, not just not just some Christians or not just some of our staff. Uh, these things have happened under your watch. Um, these things have happened under your authority. 
These things have happened under the auspices of the office that you hold. So you should be apologizing, asking for forgiveness on behalf of the whole, not on behalf of some. Right. Um, so, so those are some of my initial thoughts. Um, <clears throat> wanted to jump in here, just kind of uh, maybe a double double parted question here, but um, so. 2000, 2009 public law, you know, the United States, United States apologizes. We have this case where uh, background says that this is just one of many apologies by the Catholic Church. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury apologizes around this time, too. So, you know, in light of all of that, and I've, I've, I've seen different ministries that are native led that have uh, apologized to the United States government and to the church. Um Having being in a red state, uh, referring to Democrats and Republicans, being in a red state, uh, most of them don't most of them don't align with the with the Pope. I mean, there's a large Catholic um, um, gather or not large population of Catholic people here, but um, I'd say for the most part, the people that I bump into are the ones that are saying. Who cares? the The Pope doesn't the Pope doesn't control the entire church, you know, worldwide. And um, Catholics think it's a big deal. I, you know, I spend a lot of time at University of Mary. And um, is it is an apology enough? I mean, because obviously you've had the United States government do it, you've had the Pope do it, you've had the Archbishop of Canterbury do it, you've had various uh, followers of Jesus that are uh, various tribes. Is, is an apology enough? That's a great question, Bobby. And and I, I just went to the apology itself, not the not the hoped for outcome beyond the apology, but just a couple things. One, I know I know there would be a lot of people in whether they're red states or blue states, doesn't matter whether they're in our country, liberal, conservative, new Democrats or Greens or whatever. A lot of people who go to churches that aren't Catholic. They could be Baptist, they could be Christian Missionary Alliance, Pentecostal, Eastern Orthodox, doesn't matter. Um, well, maybe not so much Eastern. Let me leave the Eastern Orthodox out for the moment. Uh, not not for your sake, Bobby, but um, but 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 the other ones, um, you know, whatever stripe of bat, you know, there's there's I heard two things. There are two things that God Himself doesn't know. Uh, one is the number of orders in the Catholic Church, and the other is the number of kinds of Baptists. Um, so so anyway, um, so while the Catholic Church doesn't speak for everybody today, up until the Reformation, it did. Uh, up until the Reformation in the Western world, it spoke for everybody. Up until the Reformation and beyond, the uh, theology of the Catholic Church was the foundation upon which everything else is constructed subsequent to that. Uh, through the Reformation, Calvinists, Lutherans, Anabaptists, and others spring into existence. Uh, and then offshoots of all of that, and so on and so forth. And I know the Baptists like to take themselves back down to the early church, but but let's set that aside for the moment and recognize that Augustine's theology, Aquinas' theology, Calvin's theology, Luther's theology, all of that has impacted contemporary evangelical, small e or big e uh, denominations, and has framed and formed their thinking. So when the Pope apologizes or doesn't apologize, when he puts it into a Catholic context historically, that's still nonetheless the context of the majority of the Christian church, irrespective of whether 
Catholic, Protestant, Protestant, Evangelical, or Protestant mainline. So that'd be the first thing. We can't, we can't exonerate ourselves because we're not Catholic today. Uh, when the Catholic policies of 400 years ago were the policies that we founded our thinking and behavior upon. The second thing is to say apology without action that follows it up. It's, it's like repentance requires change. So if we think of, uh, if we think of, um, you know, uh, if I think of my own life, you know, I was a, I was a, a, a deeply uh, troubled reprobate. I was mainlining peanut butter at a young age. I was, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I was, I was this classic ne'er-do-well, uh, didn't give a rip about God, didn't give a rip about much of anything other than myself and all of that until Bev and I got married at five. Um, and then, and then things started to change. So when I gave my, when I gave my life, as I, as I described it back then, today, when I acknowledge the person work, life, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension, return of Jesus as critically important to consider and to engage with and to say, what do I need to do about that? And recognize that I needed to, I needed to apologize for being stupid in my behavior, for being an idiot. Um, I needed to repent of doing stupid things, wrongheaded things, uh, and so forth. There's a corollary to that. If I if I recognize it as wrong, and I say, "Forgive me." So so if I, if I do something wrongheaded and stupid to Donnie, and I go and steal something from him, or I smack him upside the ear, and 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 then I go back and I say, "I'm sorry, Donnie. Um, I, please forgive me." I, I repent of doing that. There's an expectation that follows that. Uh, actually, a couple. The first is I'm not going to do it again if I was sincere. So if I was genuine in my apology and in a request for forgiveness, I'm going to do my very best not to do that again. I'm going to change my behavior and my attitude. Uh, the second is if I've done damage, I, I should make recompense or restitution for what I've done in some way, shape, or form. Now, technically, our legal systems are built on that kind of idea. Um, although we sometimes refer to justice um, uh, in ways that make it clear that we're more interested in punishment and vengeance than we are justice um, in our systems. But, but there's this idea of recompense, restitution. Um, what, what I like to think about it as, and, and Randy Woodley does a, a pretty decent job of talking about this in some of his writing when, when he talks about the restoration of harmony. The Navajo, to the extent that I understand their ways, talk about restoring harmony. They, they talk about when a breach occurs or a conflict occurs, bringing us back to harmony. In, in Mi'kmaq in, in in, in thinking, there are two core principles, kasalu uh, kasalio. It, it means love and compassion. And, and, and at the heart of all of that is to live well with people which means when you mess up or you wrong them or you hurt them, you find a way to, to restore the relationship. And so, so the apology and, and the, the request for forgiveness should be followed by what do we need to do to make it right? What do we need to do to now live into right relationship? And, and this is the complicated part after so many years is there are so many different compounded experiences of the impact of 
Catholic Church theology, Catholic Church practice, Baptist Church theology and Baptist Church practice and Pentecostal theology and practice on indigenous communities just in North America, never mind elsewhere, never mind elsewhere. They're so compounded that it's difficult to unravel what needs to happen. So, so not to simplify it and make it seem as though it's trite, but but it seems to me that that we should explore what does it look like for us to live in right relationship with one another. Um, is a way to think about reconciliation. Is a way to think about restitution, restoration, those kinds of things. So that's why, you know, when I when I talk about when we talk about in the Christian context, we talk about sin, and we tend to like to define sin in legal and moral terms because of the theologians that have gone before us, particularly Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin and so on. Um, we we like to use a legal moral framework, but. In the in the biblical creation narrative in Genesis one and two, there is no moral or legal framework that's been created there. The only framework that's created in the Genesis narrative is the framework of the covenant of God's creation. That's all. There, there are no laws given to govern the creation. There are only here are the creational covenantal behaviors and responsibilities you have: uh, human beings, animals, etc. So when the when the when our first parents breached the covenant, and so we think of it in in First Nations, Inuit, Métis contexts, in Native American contexts as treaties. When 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 you engage in treaty making, you're talking about relationship, how you're going to live. It's it's not legal principles. It's not you know contractual law or anything that you're talking about. How are we going to live now? I'm not suggesting that all treaties were done well, not suggesting they're all framed well, not suggesting they were all kept or anything like that, but but that's the intent of them. Um, and treaty existed long before contact with Europeans uh, among our folk. So treaty established how we will relate to one another um, in a certain land or context, uh, in certain circumstances and so forth. That's what we see in in the scriptures is is this covenant relationship, a treaty, as it were. Here's how we should relate to one another. Um, when the treaty is, is is breached, then then everything begins to fall into disarray. There are three areas of covenant relationship that are breached. The first is the relationship between human beings and God and other spiritual powers. And by other spiritual powers, I mean not not just the ones that as First Nations, uh, Inuit, Métis folk, that uh, Native Americans that we know about from our own experiences in our communities and so forth, and in our histories, etc., but also the ones Paul talks about, spiritual powers of uh, wickedness in high places, those kinds of things. So we're to be in right relationship with God, the creator of all, and in right relationship with other spiritual powers, uh, not serving nor seeking to be served by. Uh, not worshiping or seeking to be worshipped by those other things. We're to be in right relationship with one another in the human community. Um, not not oppressing um, one another, not abusing one another, not misusing one another, not seeking our own welfare at the expense of another. None of those sorts of things. We're to be in right relationship with one another in the human community. And we're to be in right relationship with and right relatedness to the rest of the creation that we are all a part of. Uh, we're neither above it nor below it. We're part of it. We cannot live without it, but it, uh, it could definitely live without us, but we can't live without it. We, we are supported and nurtured in this. So we live in right relationship and relatedness to that. 
I mean, we even have a we even have a phrase for it in Dakota is to be a good relative. So, um, am I being a good relative with Creator? Um, am I good being a good relative with my wife? Am I being good relative to the environment? Right now, that's the hot topic in, in a, the United States, and Native people have been saying that for a while. So, I think to be a good relative um, kind of sums up where it's at. You know, we're talking about the relatedness that we have in. There is no word for I'm sorry. You know. Um, my good friend Dakota Goodhouse, he's working on his PhD also. He teaches out here at United Tribes. And he says, he said, the closest thing I've been able to come up with is, you know, that thing I did to you, overlook it. <laughs> he said, other than that, <laughs> there isn't, there really isn't. And he said, I've just been racking my brain the past several years. So I think just a good takeaway. I mean, everything, but um, even in all of this, like my my heart is heavy for um, the children, you know. Um, so I think just even thinking about that thought um, of just even as we talk about apology and how to step into the conversation, um, there there's just the children to kind of think about too. So, but I think that's just from my being a mom. <laughs> when I was listening to one of the elders. Uh, First Nations elders, he's, they were asking him questions about the apology. Was it enough? And then at the end, I think they said, what needs to happen? And then he, he says something to the extent of we don't need to be healed because we can heal ourselves. And I thought that was just so powerful. Like as a reminder to non-Indigenous or non-First Nations, non-Native American, that we have our own forms of healing that we're not like lost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we weren't discovered. We were always here with our own laws and yeah, uh, yep. we already made treaties and we had our own forms of healing and connection to creator. Yeah. And I thought that was so powerful. And it was good to hear from an elder say that, that we have our own forms of healing. And that is today's episode. Thank you for joining. Remember to be a good relative and don't just say you're sorry when you hurt someone. As Uncle Terry said, an apology must be followed through with action. Mm -hmm.